Our second podcast episode features the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the author of Purple Hibiscus, Half of the Yellow Sun and Americana. She's giving the inaugural Gabriel Garcia Marquez lecture at Hay Festival Cartagena in January 2019. The reason we're in Colombia and in Latin America at all is because of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Many, many years ago, round about the turn of the millennium, our friend the Mexican novelist Carlos Fuentes was advising us on how best to approach him in order to come to the festival in Wales. And he said, basically, forget it. He isn't most comfortable in the English language. He doesn't much like the climate in the Northern Hemisphere. And if you want him on your programme, you really have to take the festival to him. And there is a longer version of this story, which I hope to tell you one day, about my brilliant colleague Cristina Fuentes and how she wrangled into being this festival and all the other Latin American projects we run in Mexico, in Peru and in Chile. But the short of this is that we went to him. And together we created this festival in this exquisite colonial city on the Caribbean, familiar as Macondo from some of his fiction, but also the perfect setting for gathering together people to feel free and uninhibited and to tell stories and share ideas. And Garcia Marquez is not only the presiding genius of the country, you get the sense that for Colombians, they have had their Shakespeare now. He's also, really importantly, the father of and champion and patron of investigative journalism. And he saw himself, in the wonderful phrase, he says, I, I am a journalist above everything else. And that's the starting point for this lecture. It may seem strange to people who encounter magical realism through his work, but actually he was vital to promoting, sustaining and protecting free speech in Latin America. Chimamanda brilliantly explores this in her lecture. She plays with the idea that information and fact plus imagination is how you reveal truths. There is one other thing that I wanted to mention about Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and that's how he came to define the strapline with which we run the festival. He said in a conversation when he was um, first encountering Christina and myself in his flat in Cartagena. He was talking about uh, the duty of a writer, the role of a writer, which was, as he put it in, in Spanish, but we co-opted it, to give you the extraordinary opportunity to imagine the world from somebody else's point of view. And so we have a festival, we have Imagine the World. And here, uh, in this lecture, which was given the day after Chimamanda had been out into the Nelson Mandela Barrio, and she'd done events with Mabel Lara and Arara Vergara, with uh, many, many writers from across Latin America in camera. And then she gave this big, big public lecture. Two and a half thousand people in the convention center in Cartagena de Indias. It was a it was a rapturous reception and a stunningly brilliant lecture. And there are some moments here which are not only an absolute key to her own development as a writer, but seem to me to be fundamental to the whole project of what fiction might be.
Olá. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful, really wonderful to be here in Cartagena. It's wonderful to be here in Colombia. It's wonderful to be here in Latin America, a continent that I, just by being African, feel an affinity to. And it's an honor for me to be here giving this first Gabriel Garcia Marquez lecture. I want to start with a small story from my childhood. I remember the day clearly. My brothers and I had played football in our backyard in the afternoon on the lawn lined by short bushes with tart red fruits that we called cherries. I was 10 years old. My best friend Uju lived on the next street, and even though it was a short distance from their house to ours, I instead liked the even shorter distance of climbing over the hedge and immediately being on her street. My parents disapproved of this, and so my brothers and I always did it with great stealth. One person checked to make sure my father was not in his study, because his study was upstairs, and from the window he could see us at the hedge. And then, when all was clear, we scaled it quickly. It was a low hedge. But to further discourage the climbing, my parents had barbed wire fencing put up as well. And so on this day, as I was trying to get over the hedge and fence, a sharp corner of the barbed wire caught at my arm and tore a small hole in my flesh, which bled for a little while. And so I remember that day as the day I got a scratch from the barbed wire and the day I discovered Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uju's big brother was bookish and full of esoteric knowledge, and on his bedroom wall were cardboard posters on which he had written cryptic quotes from clearly brilliant people that none of us had ever heard of. He knew I was a reader, and from time to time he gave me books. That day, the day I got a scratch from the barbed wire, he pressed into my hand a thick paperback whose pages bore the dirty marks of too many fingers. You will like this book, he said. It was 100 years of solitude. That night in bed, I began to read. And like millions of people all over the world, I fell in love. I had never read a book like it. And for many years afterwards, it would be the book that I wished I had written. My brother, Oke, who was my co-reader when we were growing up, read it after I did. Okay is here, by the way, seated somewhere in front. And so this morning, as I was preparing for this lecture, I asked Okay whether he remembered reading the novel all those years ago. Yes, he said. That book where ants carry a baby away and a man is tied to a tree and a woman rises into the sky. And then he added... A very creepy book. <laughs> now, creepy wasn't quite what I expected him to say, 
But what better testament to a novel, what better compliment than to be remembered 30 years later? And even the word creepy in this context is a compliment because I think what O'Kay was trying to capture, and something I feel too, is the unusually haunting evocative nature of 100 Years of Solitude and indeed of Marquez's other novels. The way the reader is utterly held but not against her will. The way language functions as a hallucinatory maze in which we are enclosed willingly and yet also helplessly. The way we are so immersed, so absorbed by the sensory details that we have no choice but to remember it 30 years later. And so it was this kind of enchantment, this kind of possession that I thought about when I was asked to consider for this presentation, Marquez's famous quote that begins with the words, I am a journalist above everything else. My initial feeling was one of resistance. Surely, I thought, he cannot claim to be a journalist above everything else because journalism does not create the magic that his novels do. And didn't he write in his autobiography that he had read early in life all the books he would need to learn the novelist's craft, not the journalist's craft? And didn't he refer often to novels? Didn't Faulkner's landscapes of the American South speak to his perception of his own world? But of course, this was a simplistic and even knee-jerk reaction on my part, because I was too familiar with a certain kind of Western literary orthodoxy, an orthodoxy that makes writers bristle when they're asked about the real-life basis for their fictional characters or about the real stories behind their fiction, because this orthodoxy teaches us to privilege the idea of the imagination, which is all well and good. But it also often assumes that imagination falls from the sky on a good, clear morning when we are lucky. That imagination is untethered to the mundane reality of lived experience. And so writers sometimes get upset when asked about the story behind their stories because they assume that to ask them that question is to accuse them of a lack of imagination an accusation that is perhaps seen as appropriate for journalism, but not for fiction. Because where journalism is the work of a diligent carpenter, fiction is the work of the gifted mad artist. And we all would rather be the gifted mad artist. But perhaps we need to question this distinction more. Because to write a novel is often to be both carpenter and mad artist. Because understood more generously, reportage is in fact the basis for many novels. It is certainly the basis for my own novels, especially the novel which has the most emotional significance for me, Half of a Yellow Sun, my second novel set mostly during the Nigeria Biafra War from 1967 to 1970. I was born seven years after the war ended, and I experienced nothing of it. My parents did, as did my older sisters, who were four and two, and my eldest brother, who was born in the war, in a hospital that was bombed shortly after my mother delivered him. But for as long as I can remember, I have been haunted by that period of my family's and my country's history. I saw the physical scars left behind, 
There was an auditorium on the campus of the University of Nigeria where I grew up, whose roof had been blown off in the war, and it had never been rebuilt, and it became a part of its legendary charm. And in the early 1980s, while playing in our yard with my brothers, Oke and Kene, we would sometimes find rusty bullets, relics from the war. But our lives were normal and happy and stable. And so when I began to write the novel, I was interested not so much in the physical scars as in the emotional scars. I was interested in exploring the story of my parents and their generation of Nigerians, middle-class educated people who were fortunate enough to get government scholarships and to study in the U.S. and in Europe in the early 1960s, and who returned to Nigeria eager to be part of the growth of their newly independent countries, and who suddenly found themselves in the middle of a war. What does it mean to go from making egg sandwiches for your children in your nice little house with well-tended hibiscuses in the front yard, to standing in line at a refugee camp begging for dried egg yolk flown in by the Red Cross? What does that do to your sense of self? What does it do to your relationship with your loved ones? And yet, it would be impossible for me to address this emotional terrain without first knowing the facts, without first doing my research, without first engaging in reportage. I read every book I could find about that period. I looked at archives. I listened to radio broadcasts. I looked at old newspapers. I spoke to people who had lived through it. Almost every single story in that novel is based on something real. And I put the word real in quotes because I believe fiction also to be just as real. But that is a talk for another day. But none of these real incidents in the novel are recounted exactly as they happened. I have taken the facts and I have made them my own. I have colored them. I have reshaped them. And so it is reportage, but it is one that must necessarily be infused with poetry. The kind of poetry that turned the marshes of Marquez's Caribbean landscape into a dreamy, nostalgic mystery. Journalism, as it is practiced today, can be stifled by its own rules. I'm not so sure what Marquez would make of a certain kind of journalism of today in countries that are stumbling to the political right. A defensiveness on the part of those accused of liberal bias and a need to overcorrect and achieve that strange thing called balance. To start a story, a true story, thinking of balance is already to place an obstacle in the path of that story because what one must focus on is not balance, but truth. Perhaps the more important question is not so much about the distinction between journalism and fiction as it is whether we should rethink the labels we attach to writing, whether we should think simply of good writing and bad writing, storytelling that engages and storytelling that does not. Marquez's autobiography, Living to Tell the Tale, is a wonderfully engaging story, full of beautiful imagery, interesting insights. If you tore off the covers and give it to somebody who had never heard of it, they might very well think it was a novel. Thank you.
emoción. Qué noche tan grande. Vamos a hacer esto en inglés. Eh, I'm going to do it in English, but I'm just explaining why. Eh, me parece que quienes están aquí o tienen ya sus equipos de traducción o hablan inglés como para entender el hermosísimo inglés de Chimamanda. Eh, y cuando yo sienta que quizás la, las y los traductores eh, tengan un poco de dificultad, a lo mejor intervengo en español para explicar un poco lo que estoy preguntando. Chimamanda, welcome. Thank you. It's a source of great happiness to everybody in the audience, as you've seen, to have you here in Colombia and in Latin America. Uh, we're going to do this in English. And really, I think that what people want... That might have been me. ...is um, to hear you talk. I have a, just very general questions, three of them. Um, as, as a hard-working journalist myself... <laughs> 40 years standing I, I really do like information um, and so one of the things that I would like to ask you is and for the benefit of all of us um, who I fear may be as ignorant as I am about Nigeria and the Biafra war in, that you mentioned 1967 and 1972 um, this war is the essence I think of so much of your work, not only of Half of a Yellow Sun. Um, and if you could, to just explain briefly what happened, because for us here in Colombia, who have been so wrecked by violence, um, it, it's, I think, interesting to see where we can intersect with you. Mm. Um, so Nigeria, like many countries in um, West Africa was colonized by the British, became independent in 1960, and um, I'm going to try and make this as short as possible because it's a very complicated history. But in 1966, for a number of reasons, Nigeria is a country that has about 200 different ethnic groups. Um, there are maybe about four or five that are sort of large, but really about 200 different ethnic groups. So it's a country that is still coming into the idea even now of itself as a nation. And in 1960, there were divisions, not just ethnic divisions, but also religious divisions. Northern Nigeria is Muslim, mostly. Um, Southern Nigeria is Christian, mostly. And in the southeast, which is where my family is from, my family is ethnically Igbo, um, that region wanted to leave Nigeria. Um, it wanted to leave Nigeria because it felt that it no longer... Um, belonged. People who were from that region had been murdered in the north. Um, and also, recently, oil had been discovered in that region. And this is very important because oil is such a central theme in this story. And so th that part of Nigeria wanted to secede, and the rest of Nigeria said no. And the reason the rest of Nigeria said no was because oil. Um, and so the war was really about one region wanting to leave and the rest of the country saying, no, you can't go. And the war started in 1967, ended in 1970. We still don't quite know um, accurate numbers of people who died. It, the, the numbers sort of just vary quite wildly, but, but at least a million people died. And many of them were children. Um, 
And that also led to what became an international image, which is the image of the starving Biafran child with the distended belly and the red hair and the... Um, so, so that was Biafra. My parents were there. My parents, um, you know, their entire lives changed because my father was a young academic. He had just come back from the U.S. He had a Ph.D. He had started working at the University of Nigeria. Um, it was a very hopeful time, a happy time. And then suddenly the war starts. And at the time, many of, of, of the academics of that period thought, oh, it's going to end in two weeks. It's fine. It's nothing serious. And suddenly their lives are turned upside down. My parents talk about having to flee um, one afternoon, and they had such little time that they could take nothing. Um, my mother tells a story about saying, there's a pot on the fire. What am I supposed to do? And my father says, put the pot in the car. So she doesn't take her jewelry. She doesn't take her, but she takes the pot that was in. You know. It's sort of that confusion of just not knowing what you're doing. And, and, um, and I think it changed the trajectory of their lives. I think it changed even the way they look at the world. I think that there are many people, Igbo people, who have inherited a kind of uncertainty because of that war, who still think that something might just happen. I mean, it's, it's so long after, but they still have that. And it, it kind of reminds me of, of stories that um, Jewish friends of mine tell about their, their relatives who still think, you know, that they might come for us tomorrow, that sort of thing. And it's haunted me for a long time because I think, I think it... It shaped Nigeria. There's a lot about Nigeria's political landscape today that I think dates back to that period. So right now, for example, we have um, the opposition party. We have an Igbo man who's, who's running for vice president. And it's such a big deal because Igbo people are not supposed to be in that kind of power because, you know, they wanted to break up the country. And so there's still that sort of... Um, you know, it's kind of like uh, you, you have to prove yourself. You have to prove your patriotism if you're Igbo in Nigeria. Actually, I, by writing about that, that war in that period, I, I, I got a lot of um, I, many unpleasant things were said. Because <laughs> on Twitter and in other venues, yes about how I, I was a tribalist and how I, you know, all sorts of things. Because it's also a part of our history that people don't want to talk about. You know, they, they, we don't learn about it in school. You learn almost nothing about that period in school. Oh, I did this right. Um, there are not necessarily parallels, but there is such a history of violence here in Colombia, a war that has lasted now 62 years. And probably the death uh, rate is unhappily about the same. Uh, and it has cut the country in two, but it also makes me think about how trauma is passed on from grandparents to parents to children. And so I'm sure that adolescents in Nigeria today bear the full weight of that pain. In some ways, maybe unconsciously. I mean, I think if you spoke to them, they'd be like, oh, we're fine. Right? It happened ages ago. And all we want now is, um, I don't know, the latest iPhone. But, <laughs> but, but it's a history that sits quite heavily on, on our present. As I think, like you say, it does everywhere where there's been trauma. I do think that people inherit trauma. Um, I do think that, um, and which is why, I, and, and the reason I think it's important is that in political discourse, we, it, we have to factor that in. 
Right? I think people make political decisions based on that sort of thing. There are many Igbo people who vote in particular ways because they're thinking about what happened in 1967. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And make life choices that way. Yes. There's a scene. Um, I should also explain, perhaps, that what I consider your most important novel, which is Half of a Yellow Sun, which is just the most extraordinary um, incorporation of that violence into your writing soul uh, in, in a way that I found recognizable and familiar. Um, probably uh, there are people here who can tell me it hasn't been translated into Spanish yet. Is that correct? Ah, sí? Ah, bueno. ¿Y se llama cómo? It has been translated and it is half of the yellow sun. Anyway. Even perdón, I knew no that. In <laughs> There's a scene in that novel that comes up again and again. And I found it such a, so funny the way that we have touchstones that aren't necessarily the touchstones that people would expect us to have. There is a moment when the couple, the protagonist couple, who might be the parents, who knows, leave the university. And the, the, the university security people say, oh, don't worry, we will defeat the soldiers that are coming in two weeks and you can go come back and everything will be all right. And that scene recurs in your work. And I wonder why that particular scene is so key. It's sort of like the, the, the vast joke that history plays on us, right? This is the, the worst practical joke ever. But, but why is that scene so important? I don't know. You know, I... Um... I feel as though increasingly I, I don't I, I can't really talk about my fiction without feeling that I'm making things up. <laughs> right? <laughs> because I sort of feel that um and I like you know, you, you write a story, you write some you write something fictional and when you're doing it, it there are many things at play. It's unconscious and not that and then the book is out and you sort of have to talk about these things and half the time I'm thinking I'm just bullshitting, right? I'm like you <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, the reason that really recurs is because, but you said something that I think is very beautiful, which is, in some ways, it's that, it's, it's a tragic joke that life plays on, on us. So it's, it's that idea of a certain kind of false hope that, and, and I, there's a part of me that wonders, even now, whether my parents really believed what they claimed that they believed, um, or whether they believed it because they, they had to believe, whether they made themselves believe something that somewhere they knew was not true. So when these people tell them, oh, it'll be over in two weeks, because I talk to my parents now and I say, did you really think that my father says yes? And then even after that, when the war was, you know, one year into the war, they still kind of believe that they would win. But at this point, the British government was arming Nigeria, um, you know, Nigeria had, uh, Biafra had very little. Biafra had support from, you know, Tanzania. God bless Tanzania, but you know, Tanzania versus the British, that's not a very equal thing. And so, but still, my parents said they believed they would win. And 
I don't know. I mean, that, I'm very curious about that. And there's a part of me that wonders how I would be if I'd lived through that period. You know, whether I would be... It's easy, I think, to... Um, so I find myself being judgmental of the, the people who were on the Biafran side who didn't believe. But I don't know. I don't know. How, how would I have been if I'd been there? I don't know. Thank you for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is supported by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. You can hear full versions and see videos from the festival over on Hay Player on our website. Do please join us again next Thursday.